Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 22A, an interview on Grover Cleveland and the 1884 presidential election with Professor Ted Cohn. I'm excited to welcome Professor Ted Cohn to the show today. Ted is the Dean of the College of Liberal Arts at Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont, and a historian of the Gilded Age in American history. Uh, he's written several books, especially about Theodore Roosevelt, including A Most Glorious Ride, The Diaries of Theodore Roosevelt. But our primary focus will be on the 22nd president, Grover Cleveland, and how he broke the Republican lock on the presidency in the election of 1884. And spoiler, Teddy Roosevelt might show up at some point. Uh, professor, oh. <laughs> probably. Uh, professor, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Kenny. Thanks for asking me here. Uh, so in 1884, the Democratic Party had not won a presidential election in 28 years. James Buchanan was the last Democrat to be elected to the presidency in 1856, and it had been nothing but Republicans winning the White House ever since. So what has been going on in the Democratic Party that was holding it back those 28 years? Yeah, I mean, maybe we should even reframe it to say, you know, why the Democrats in 1884? Uh, of course, you know, you've got a little thing called the Civil War, and you've got Republican Reconstruction government set up in Southern states um, immediately after the Civil War. By that time, you know, the Democratic and Republican parties at the national level are actually pretty evenly matched. And so we get to the 1876 contested election and Democratic candidate, um, you know, Samuel Tilden actually wins the majority of the popular vote. And then we see, an, an, you know, a negotiated settlement of that election where you only had a few states in contention. And the Democrats essentially concede that election as long as, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes withdraws federal troops from the South and ends Reconstruction. And so then we have the creation of the, the solid South. 1880 election, you have James Garfield barely winning the popular vote, one of the slimmest margins in history. I think he wins by like 0.1% of the popular vote. So I, I think there's a lot of feelings by the midterm congressional elections of 1882 and 1884 that, yeah, the Democrats actually have a pretty good shot if maybe they can peel away some of those bigger swing states like New York. You know, you kind of hit on this, but it's it's surprising to me that the Democrats had been out of office so long at that point, because by 1884, you know, the suppression of African-American voters who were rapidly turning into second class citizens was well underway in the South. Are we at Jim Crow yet? Like and what are Southern white Democrats doing to keep these Republican leaning African-Americans out of the polling booths around this time? Uh, absolutely. I and mean, we have wholesale disenfranchisement of African-American voters in the South. And you have to remember that, you know, even, um, you know, even during the late 19th century, we're still talking about 90 percent of African-Americans still living in the South. Right. The, the great migration to northern cities is not going to occur until the first World War. So there is no, you know, kind of African-American South side of Chicago. There is no African-American Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance yet. That occurs much later. And so, you know, you have the Southern Redeemers absolutely in a concerted effort, keeping African-Americans away from the polls, absolutely defying the Constitution by doing this through things like the grandfather clause. Did your grandfather 
vote? Well, my grandfather was a slave, so no, he didn't. Well, then you can't vote either. Poll taxes, um, you know, testing what, before you can register to vote. Can you name all the signatories of the Declaration of Independence? And all of these things are, of course, reinforced by a campaign of violence and intimidation against African Americans, against their white allies, um, you know, all of these things enshrined in local laws, but enforced with the rifle and the noose. So between suppressive laws and outright violence or threats, the Democrats, they have the South on lockdown. A, what are they trying to offer the rest of the country? What are their selling points? But also, does the rest of the country care about that? Like, do people, will people be like, yeah, I like the Democrats tax policy, but they're killing like African-Americans in the South. Like, I'm not cool with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some articles by the end of the 20th century, even written by people like Booker T. Washington on the Negro problem. But I I think it's in many ways because of the, the fracturing of the Democratic Party at the local level that allows a lot of these things to exist. Um, you know, there have been accusations that the Democratic Party at the national level really doesn't do much more than be in opposition to the Republicans, the Republicans who represent liberty and union, represent federal power through tariffs, through the gold standard, even through you know, the imposition of moral ideas and moral order through things like prohibition, And the Democrats say, well, we're opposed to these things at the local level. And so there's a slew of different local Democratic parties, Democratic, you know, with a a big D, but really responding to local interests. I mean, you've got the Southern Redeemers, you've got Swallowtail Republicans, you've got Bourbon Republicans, you've got Tammany, uh, sorry, Democrats, Democrats, yeah, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Tammany Democrats in New York, New York City. I mean, so you've got greenbackers, you've got silver Democrats, but actually in many ways, that's a strength, right? Because you can have Democratic candidates responding to local interests and local elections. And then every four years, they can come together at the national level bounded together by not much more than probably their common interest in power and and patronage. Got it. So so every local candidate, you know, they're campaigning on that local issue. And if somebody in the crowd is like, hey, wait, what's happening in the South? They're just like, oh, I, I'm not really exactly with those guys. I'm more against the Republicans. I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, in 1884, we have, you know, the, the famous, um, you know, a couple of weeks before the end of the election, you know, the, the famous statement by um, a pastor standing with the Republican candidate, James Blaine, about Rome, you know, Rome, Romanism and rebellion. And so, of course, there's still, you know, the Republican efforts from time to time to wave the bloody shirt. But it's actually it's amazing how it's that's really in many ways one of the only times in the 1884 election that people are making reference to the Civil War to what's going on in in the South, you know. So it, it really is interesting how yes, you can kind of justify, you know, your own hands off responsibility from what those Southern Democrats are doing by saying, "Well, I'm a New York Democrat. I'm an Ohio <laughs> right. Democrat. Why would that have anything to do with me?" Especially if part of our national message is about 
local and state power. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, hey, those are another zip code. Let's talk about this zip code. Don't worry about it. So, yep. okay. So this party that is very fractured and very localized, somehow they land and, and also very, you know, centralized in the South, their base of power. Somehow they land on Grover Cleveland, a guy who wasn't even in politics a few years ago. You know, this this former Buffalo mayor, New York governor. How do they land on him as the 1884 standard bearer? You know, I, I think this is a, a, a this is the right guy at the right time. Um, and, and, and it's the right guy at the right time in the king making state of New York. And, we, and we'll see this with someone like, dare I say, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, who rose like a rocket, you know, very similarly, um, you know, to the presidency from a governorship of New York very, very quickly. Uh, you know, when Samuel Tilden says he's not interested to run uh, in 1884 for health, reasons, you know, immediately people start locking on Grover Cleveland, again, one of these Bourbon pro-business Democrats. He's for the gold standard. He's for the tariff. He's for the railroads. And this is the era that people are talking about reform. And the Republicans are plagued by scandal. And this is one of the things that the Democrats are using as a very effective um, weapon against the Republicans. Sure, like you're saying, Kenny, yeah, look at the Republicans. They've been in office for so long and, you know, power breeds corruption. Uh, and and this, is, this is exactly what's happening with the Republicans. And so the Democrats are very savvy in, and, and significantly, I think it's very significant that the Republicans nominate Blaine, who is a very flawed candidate, and then the Democrats say, aha, this is our opportunity to call on someone, to pick somebody who, maybe because he hasn't been in politics very long, is perhaps untainted by these similar sort of accusations, unlike James Blaine, who is like the Thomas Nast famous cartoon, him, the, the tattooed man, right? These indelible series of scandals that have followed Blaine around for, for decades. Maybe Cleveland, with his very short rise to power, he just simply hasn't been under the microscope that long. Is, is there anything to look into about the fact that he's not from the South? Like for the Southerners, did they see this as kind of their Trojan horse to get into the White House? Yeah, I mean, th this is it. I mean, every, every, you know, like I said, it's about power and patronage. Um, you know, once you got your guy in the White House, it's spoil system still exists. And there's plenty of spoils from Washington on down to the, you know, the local post office for there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of spoils to, to go around. So th this is what they're concerned about. It's not that they don't need a Southerner in the White House to benefit from a Democrat being in the White House. But it just, you know, this is the thing about the Democrats and this solid South that's going to be able, you know, in 1884, the Democrats know that because of the solid South, they're already halfway yeah. to an electoral victory without, you know, they could nominate the chair you're sitting in, Kenny, and that chair would already be halfway to the White House. I mean, that, that's a huge advantage for the Democrats going into 1884. So the Democrats, they got the South on lockdown. They've got this New York reformer on the ticket. There's this little order of operations thing, like the Republicans have already nominated Blaine. So Democrats are kind of, kind of reacting to it. 
And the Democrats think they now have these reform messages they can win with. I'd love to talk about what's happening in the Republican Party right now in reaction to Blaine. You mentioned he's very flawed. And it appears the party's kind of starting to split at the seams. And your boy, Teddy Roosevelt, is part of it. What's happening? Yeah, so great. You, you give me the opening talk to uh, Theodore Roosevelt. So <laughs> I can just I can just take over for the next uh, half hour. You got so. it. All oh, yours, boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So, yeah, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt absolutely represents that reform wing of the Republican Party. He really inherited uh, kind of the mantle of civil service reform from his father and being a New York elite allied with people like Henry Cabot Lodge in Massachusetts. You know, this is this has emerged as a very distinct wing of the Republican Party. And, and Theodore Roosevelt in New York has been making noise about that. And he was able to work with Governor Grover Cleveland as a Republican reformer in the New York State legislature. So by the time of the 1884 convention, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt heads to the Chicago convention, the Republican convention, as I mean, he's only like 25 years old yeah. at the time. He's, he's yeah. served three, I mean, that's amazing in itself, right? He served three years in the New York state legislature and he and someone like Lodge, uh, you know, and a, and a small group of allies go to the convention with the express purpose of trying to to steal the nomination away from Blaine, as Republicans like Lodge have been very successful in doing in 1880 and throwing the candidacy to a dark horse like James Garfield. And so, you know, this is Roosevelt and Lodge, you know, really making kind of a, a big public national stink about this very flawed candidate, James Blaine, followed around by scandal for his career. This is this is 25-year-old Theodore Roosevelt, you know, kind of getting national attention for the first time, rising in the convention for the first time to give a speech to a national audience. And in the end, it is a, a losing proposition. Um, you know, Blaine, I think, gets the nomination on like the fourth vote. So it was it was meant to be for Blaine in 1884. But People like Roosevelt and Lodge, in many ways, the damage has been done. And, and Blaine emerges from that convention. You know, this is what people are going to be focusing on. In an era of reform, the Republicans immediately seem really kind of out of step with the national dialogue by nominating somebody whose name seems so synonymous with scandals and with people like Roosevelt Lodge speaking against them, these problem, prominent Republicans, this really gives an opening for Republicans, for independents or mugwumps, you know, people interested in reform to, you know, um, bolt the Republican Party if the Democrats nominate someone that they can vote for with a clear conscience. So you just mentioned the, the TR and Lodge, they, they throw up this big protest, but they stay in the party. But a bunch of other Republicans, these mugwumps, they leave, which kind of opened this broader question in my mind. When I look at the GOP from that point, really the previous like kind of 20 years, it seems that it always struggled with factions. You had radicals versus non-radicals during the Civil War. You had half-breeds versus stalwarts afterwards. Now you got mugwumps threatening to withdraw the support and bolting. Why was that party always struggling with such strong polar factions? Yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is exactly part of the difficulty of holding together from election to election 
a, a strong national party when, of course, as we know, you know, the, the electoral system, you know, fosters this two party system, unlike Europeans who have a multiplicity of parties and they form coalitions after the election. American parties, we've, we are forced to form these coalitions before the election. And so, you know, these and these coalitions are um, kind of manipulated often by local machine politicians, state bosses who have a lot on New York Republican politics or Missouri politics or Ohio Republican politics. And so you see this kind of rise and fall of different machine bosses, different factions within the party as they try to maintain, keep in mind, not only um, control of the White House, but even though there's a solid South, those uh, many border districts or upper South districts do give enough Republican votes in Congress so that Republicans can maintain as well a majority in, uh, in the House and Senate. And so it, trying to maintain a solid Republican vote, not just every four years, but really kind of you know, keep a solid, uniform Republican Party through every election, I mean, that's really almost an impossibility. And as you said, by 1884, with reform, kind of this ascendant idea appealing to a lot of people, corruption's got to go. The spoil system has got to go, right? Good government, um, you know, the goo-goos. You know, th this is something, um, it's right before the progressive movement. This is really kind of the pre-progressive moment. And it's a big challenge for the Republican Party. Okay, so the Republicans have their man, James G. Blaine. The Democrats have their man, Grover Cleveland. They got their platform, and they're feeling really good. Like, we got the guy with no scandals, no skeletons in this guy's closet. Oops. Oops. <laughs> and, and then it all becomes a campaign of who has the bigger scandal. You know, Blaine being accused of taking bribes, but Cleveland gets caught in this Maria Halpin affair. I, I talked about it in, in my last episode so I just love to kind of get your take. What do you think really happened between Cleveland and Maria? Because I've seen his version. I've seen her version. And I haven't seen a lot of clarity on where historians think the truth lies. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting that we now know the truth, for instance, about Thomas Jefferson's descendants because of DNA. Uh, I, I would maybe this is the next shoe to drop. Right. Maybe somewhere out there we're going to get like a scientific evidence for this. So the fact is, you know, uh, Cleveland admitted to a sexual relationship with that woman, Maria Halpin. Uh, there was a child <laughs> that came afterwards, and he admitted to paying for child support. So in many ways, and he admitted to these things. So you can say, well, he did it because he felt responsibility for the woman and the child. Well, he did it because a number of his friends also had a liaison with the same widow and he was doing, and they became, and they got married, unlike Cleveland. And so he was doing this to protect his friends, but I'm, I'm kind of like a, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck kind of, kind of guy, if you admit to a sexual relationship with a woman, the woman has a baby and you agree to pay child support for the baby, I, I'm not a lawyer, but boy, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of circumstantial evidence that, yeah, that probably 
This is this is acknowledgement by Cleveland that this is his child. And I'm curious because there's there's other parts of it from the Maria version. Like yeah. Maria alleges that he raped her. You know, Maria right. alleges that he promised to marry her so that he could and take then, the baby yeah. away and all that. And, and Maria alleges that he locked her in an asylum. Locked her in an asylum. And and the and, right. And then there are and, and then and it's and it's interesting because what you know what does how does Cleveland respond to it? He he, he tells the truth. And there are that, you know, he, he acknowledges that these things happen, not, not those things, but, you know, the, the, the affair, the yeah. child, the child support. But then there are these like investigations that of what actually happened. And it turns out that it was a concern. And of course, this, this plays into like Victorian ideas about morality. Who's more to blame when something like this happens? Is it Cleveland, the man? taking advantage of a poor helpless woman but she did have these kind of liaisons with with other men so it did seem like they were two consenting adults uh, apparently maria turned to alcohol uh, and the child was actually perhaps really in danger and it wasn't cleveland who said you know get a writ and, and, and lock her up, it was someone else who did this, perhaps to protect, to protect the child, uh, really possibly from actual death. Um, but it, it maybe that it, the, the way it's presented, you know, is, is it more about Cleveland, you know, who didn't have an affair, you know, because he wasn't married, you know, Cleveland being unmanly, taking advantage of a poor, helpless woman, or no, this was actually you know, kind of two consenting adults and Maria at the end, you know, really had some, I think, some significant problems and all of the people, you know, who were supposed to be like witnesses and all the evidence that people were said, oh, we're going to provide that proves all of these allegations. You know, suddenly all these things kind of disappeared uh, when people started really kind of, you know, investigating the, 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 the allegations how much did it really seem to impact the election? You know, do, do, do you get the sense that people really, like when they heard this, was it just more like, wow, crazy story you hear about that? Or, or was it something that a lot of people were like, man, this, this might impact my vote? Yeah. So first of all, I've got to get this out of the way, right? Sure. We've got to get the chant in there, right? You know, oh, ma, yeah, yeah. ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. It, it, it's Absolutely. a great election, Kenny. Yeah, I mean, as I'm sure your, you know, your listeners Listeners know, I mean, you talk about negative campaigning now and personal scandals. Yeah, right. I mean, we've been been living with this for like 200 years of American history. So let me posit something to you. Is is it possible that American voters back in 1884 in the 2000s are able to kind of compartmentalize Right. Personal character flaws in order to justify this is what the candidate is going to do for me. And this is what I believe, you know, the candidate's public persona is more important. I think we have seen this recently in American politics. And I think we don't say. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and hey. The Democrats have had this. Yeah. This as well. Of of (laughs) course. Back in the 19. 1990. So I, I think this is something that was going on back in, in 1884. Like, yes, I acknowledge that 
This, this person is not as personally clean as I would like them to be, and not as upstanding of character, but you know what? I'm willing to turn a blind eye to that to make sure my guy in my party gets to the White House. I, that does sound kind of familiar to me. <laughs> uh, so end of the day, Grover Cleveland, he wins the election of 1884. He becomes the first Democrat to win the White House since 1856. And we, we've talked about all these different factors. You know, there were Blaine scandals. There's the mugwumps, Teddy Roosevelt's out there. The Maria Halpin thing. Uh, bottom line, why do you think Grover Cleveland won? I, I think it goes back to what I said before. I think, I think the, the Republicans made a huge misstep nominating Blaine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something they... They learn. I think they're, you know, they'll, they're going to learn. And this is something that Theodore Roosevelt ends up being pretty good at in his career. They learn that the two wings of the parties need to kind of work together, that you need to kind of bridge the regular Republicans and reform Republicans. They're never really going to put up somebody like Blaine again. And, and, the, and the Democrats capitalized on that very well. Um, and so, it, you know, Cleveland, the right guy for the right job. When when the Republicans go back to this Blaine well, you know, put up Blaine again. When by 1884, that that's not who the American people are are looking for. And there's enough there's enough Republicans themselves, right? That you should have known that. And there's enough mugwumps. You've got E. L. Godkin. With the Evening Post and the Nation, there's enough people out there saying, I am above politics and I'm going to vote for what's right and not for a certain party. Awesome. Uh, The last question I always love to close with is what lessons in leadership can we learn from Grover Cleveland in in particular in the way he ran this campaign we've been talking about? Again, I think I come back to the shocking idea that when presented with a scandal that was going to, I mean, on the face of it, was going to wreck his candidacy and he would lose the White House, what did he do? He told the truth, right? That I will, I will tell the truth. And admitting to the affair, admitting that the child was, uh, there's a child, and admitting to the fact that he was paying child support, I think that went a long way, a, a, a balm to the conscious, uh, you know, the, the collective conscious of people who are looking at, you know, like, could I still support this guy? Shocking, Kenny, that a politician faced with a, a personal scandal doesn't just say, I'm going to, I'm not just denying, but I'm vehemently vehemently right. denying oh he didn't just deny he vehemently denied it so it must not be true he a politician who told the truth i think that is my takeaway for cleveland and and leadership uh, thank you so much if you'd like to hear more from professor Cohn, please check out his numerous books on theodore roosevelt and uh, ted thank you so much for your time it was a great chat thank you kenny Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we're going to look at the presidency of Benjamin Harrison, the man who unseats Grover Cleveland, and why when he campaigns and says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And then he actually does it, and he passes all this legislation. The country rewards him by kicking him out of office. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>